Welcome to Singing Teachers Talk, the podcast that brings you great interviews, insightful discussions and advice around the topic of singing and teaching singing. Now it's over to your host for today's episode. It's me, Alexa Terry. Hello there. Today I'm in very good company, joined by a voice teacher and Guild certified Feldenkrais practitioner who has lectured at the likes of Harvard University and the University of Michigan. He is a featured teacher for vocal health education and co-host of the Thinking Voice podcast. And I'm very excited because he'll also be presenting at BAST's Focus on the Body and Singer event, which is taking place on Monday, the 27th of June, 2022. Robert Susuma, it's a pleasure to meet you and welcome you to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are you? Thank you so much, Alexa. I'm so happy to be here and I'm great, doing very well. Uh, as a certified practitioner, can you explain to us what Feldenkrais and somatic education is and how that has influenced your thinking and teaching? Ooh, can of worms, that is. Yes, yes, I can. So it is the Feldenkrais method of somatic education. That's the full title of uh, the Feldenkrais method. And there are lots of ways to describe it. And if you ask most Feldenkrais practitioners, they will say, it's impossible. Uh, it's impossible to describe. There's always so much more. And I think that's true. But I will try. And it'll be my, my try for today, because it's always different. And as I've grown and worked more with the work, my perspective on what it is has changed as well. But if I'm going to sum it up, it, it is a way of being with oneself through movement, where in the movement sequences and in the movement explorations, one is at the same time making connection with oneself in new ways and exploring new patterns of movement that can basically seep into the system on a nervous system level, very subconscious, and it starts to update the system from within. I have a student, uh, shout out to Stephen, who is a longtime st student of mine, who calls it updating the motherboard. It's like the lessons somehow, it's not about cognitive understanding only. It's not about something technical. You can talk about it like that, but something deeper happens. It's something at the real kind of core nervous system level, at the level where your system runs the system. That's where the lessons get into. And the Feldenkrais lessons are designed to do that. And they update you from within at this deep core nervous system level so that when you go to do things in a more conscious way, the system is there to support you in better and more functional ways. And particularly in the Feldenkrais method, there are two modalities for doing that. There's the hands-on modality, which is called functional integration, which is nonverbal which I haven't been able to practice very much during pandemic times, but I miss it very much. And the other version is called awareness through movement or ATMs. They're ATM lessons, which are verbally led. And the person listens to what's being said and has to interpret what it means, which helps them take it into their system. And then through the experience of figuring that out, this kind of updating of the motherboard occurs. And I started my Feldenkrais training back in 2005. And 
that was also when I was doing a lot of study in vocal function, uh, vocal health, uh, voice science. I was also performing a lot, teaching a lot, uh, working with choirs a, a lot at that time. And so this way of, of influencing the system indirectly or getting to sort of the heart of the system that runs what we're doing, that runs the singer, that runs the musician, became really interesting to me. And I thought, okay, how could we take these ideas and these, these kind of lesson principles, these learning principles, which are kind of neurologically based and um, also physically based, awareness based, and how could, how could I or we um, create lessons that have a similar kind of effect, but they're more directly related to the kinds of functions and actions and mm, requirements that singers need? Um, Feldenkrais tends to be very general. It's about general human action, such as reaching, uh, sitting, standing, walking, uh, turning, twisting, um, they're very basic. So that I thought, okay, well, what would what would that be for singing? And that's what I've spent the last, I guess, almost 20 years trying to figure out mm. and come up with my own way of taking the principles, taking the ideas, taking the kind of, I call it the formula of no formula. There's not a formula about how to do it, but once you get into the feel of it and you have so much of the experience of it, you start to understand how it works. And then I've also, because I'm a curious person, I'm also a dyslexic person. So I tend to be a large thinker. I tend to take a lot of different things and kind of pull them together into my thinking. So I've also integrated the Feldenkrais somatic work with experiential learning, with um, chaos theory and complexity theory, with dynamical systems theory and dynamical systems and learning and development. Um, many things, also art, uh, creativity. Um, and then because I'm dyslexic, I also have a visual, I have a very visual um, tendency. I, I enjoy bringing in the visual aspect, which which seems to be helpful. Mm. Yeah, how's that for an answer? Really great. Thank you. I didn't want to stop. <laughs> All right. <laughs> How would you go about introducing this to a singer? the idea of self-awareness and one's sense of self. Mm. I'll tell you I've made mistakes <laughs> and I've learned the hard way. I think because I've spent so many hundreds and hundreds of hours rolling around on the floor doing weird movements, Feldenkrais style, um, developmental movements, and seeing just how much it impacted my voice, um, just in a general way, um, I thought everyone would find that interesting. Uh, also, a lot of uh, the, the style of, of learning in this way involves novelty. So one of the ways that you, that you kind of trick the nervous system into paying attention is you create novel learning situations, doing things that are weird, and as soon as you're asking someone to do something strange or do something they've done, but in a totally new way that, that feels like, wow, I've never done this before, it, it quickly engages the system and, and your nervous system is paying attention. But often consciously, it's a very weird thing you're doing. And so a lot of singers who are not used to this uh, way of thinking and way of working are always asking, well, why? And what is this? And, 
and we do it this way. Why not just, you know, do this exercise? It, it's, it's much more uh, plug and play or A plus B equals C thinking in the normal way of a kind of thinking of things. And there's a paradigm shift that one needs to go through to actually understand that, that working with novelty and indirectly and really engaging the nervous system uh, is very effective, but strange compared to what most people do. So I, I have back to having had made them having made the mistake of, um, I thought like, this is the coolest thing I've ever discovered. And I think every singer is going to love this. <laughs> and, and actually, it's just way too out there for a lot of people. So I can do that. Um, I can wow people and I can do strange things that have really cool effects. But I have found that if a person is not prepared or ready to integrate it or doesn't have a model for why this makes any sense whatsoever, often it's, it's, it's either too weird or um, they don't like it. It's so confusing that they find it uncomfortable. So one thing I have learned to swing back around to your question is that the that the easiest best way to introduce it to to singers and voice teachers too is is simply and as a kind of mini experiment not too big um, even though it could go there um, that one lesson number one is that awareness enough awareness itself is enough to create change which is a really weird concept so you could literally do something become aware in a totally new way and do that thing again and the thing again will be different that in itself can be a shocking experience and i would probably just start there awareness is enough to create change and when i say awareness it's self-awareness and as i as i say in the title of the of the workshop i'm going to do uh for bast uh, in june is this idea of developing greater interoception. And this is the sense of being able to be aware of yourself while you're doing things and what you feel, what you sense, what you hear, um, what the relationships are inside that are within any kind of action. So we can literally spend time becoming aware of ourselves, not in action. So this is an also challenging that a lot of times people want to sing to improve their singing. That is a very common approach. So this says, no, sing. That's something you're doing. Become more aware of yourself to yourself. Sing again. Your singing will be different. So I would probably start there and, and just get them used to this idea that awareness is really at least 75% of the game. And then from there, what we are aware of and how we use that awareness in various combinations, in various actions, in various ways, can really update your system to your system and update yourself to yourself, update your singing to the part of you that sings. And that, mm -hmm. that gets really complicated. And I can run and get really, really um, out there with that, which I enjoy, but it's all built on this very simple idea that awareness is enough to create change. Mm. And how do you then go about helping the individual to understand those sensations, translate them into something that then you can help them progress with or that they can mm -hmm. start to kind of break down? Um, what language would you use or what would you draw attention to? Is there anything there? 
That's interesting. Um, I think this is also a point that that gets confusing. So it's almost like these awareness lessons are experiments outside of life that get deep in the system that when you come back to life, if the system is truly changed, there's a change in the self-image, there's a change in the nervous system, there's a change in the foundation of how you act, then it will automatically have an effect on the action when you engage in that action again. So it's almost like we take ourselves out of space and time for a moment, out of action, explore what is, what's there, and it's not all of it, it's a, it can be a particular aspect, and that is what you take with you. Um, I like to say the lesson isn't what we do, it's what you learn in having done it, which is different for each person. So if you're in that kind of A plus B equals C paradigm thinking, you'll say, well, I did this, therefore, if I want this, I'll do that again. And that's not how it works at all. Um, not in this other way. So ideally, the learning has occurred. Your nervous system, through the lessons, through the sensing of the self, trying new things, applying the awareness in new novel ways, you learn something. And then if that truly has occurred, which, which it most likely does, unless there's some kind of confusion or resistance, which there can be, and that's okay, then your system's going to use that automatically because it feels better, it's, it's, it feels more balanced, it's more efficient, it's more pleasant. And then when you go to sing, there it is. So it's a kind of a delicate balance of allowing yourself the space to learn without making it be about anything other than what arises. And then with whatever arises, can you just sing without trying to sing and without trying to make it be something you think it should be? So a lot of times I will say, stop singing and just sing. Or after a lesson, if we're going to sing again, I'll say, don't think, don't try to do anything just sing. And it, it lets something deeper come from within that has already been learned. The change has already occurred. And then you see, can I let that through into my singing? Now, sometimes the answer is not quite, and sometimes it's immediate. So it depends on the person. And then there are techniques, I would say, for how you, you help the person understand that what they've already learned can integrate with their singing. Um, there are ways to do that. Um, which are a little more complicated. But ideally, it's the staying connected with yourself, not trying to make anything happen per se, and allowing the awareness to actually be present, just sing, is enough. Mm -hmm. But that in itself, you, you almost have to train yourself to be able to do that, um, so that the learning can actually come through spontaneously, rather than having to control everything all the time, which is what most people are trying to do. Mm. So is it more a case of being rather than thinking and having to di dissect every little answer and having to translate everything and just allowing? Yes. And now it's also, it's interesting, it's in the title, right? So so I called the, the workshop that we're going to do, not that we're going to cover all of this in two hours, but <clears throat> we'll try, um, sense and sensibility. In other words, the ability to sense, developing greater interoception through uniting our thinking, feeling, and sensing in action. So thinking isn't bad. Feeling isn't bad. Feeling more in the emotional way. 
sensing is good. It's the thing we tend not to do very much. And action. So there's always movement, action. We're, we're doing something. So the idea is that we unite it. So how can I think in such a way that I'm not only in a mental state trying to control something uh, in a disconnected way? And how can I be in my feelings in such a way that they're not taking over and I'm not in full, you know, absorption? I'm still able to think. I'm still able to sense myself. I'm still able to move and have, you know, intentions. The idea is you can be in a state where we're all four are present. And actually, this is an idea that Feldenkrais had. And his idea was that the self is made up of these four things, thinking, feeling, sensing, and moving. It's a unity of the four. Now, most of us have preferences. Now, if you're thinking and you're trying to think yourself into moving without really being present in the moving, not sensing, not feeling, then you're probably in control. You're, trying, you're in this control mode and it gets very mechanical, um, which is kind of an old kind of medical model thinking. So how can you have all of it there at the same time and awareness be the basis of what holds it all together. I am aware of my thoughts. I'm aware of my feelings. I'm aware of my sensations. I'm aware of my movements. I'm aware of what's happening. And I'm constantly adjusting in this awareness. Mm. And with the singers that you work with, have you seen a pattern that out of those four, there seems to be one dominant one? Yes. There tend to be the technical people who are the thinkers, and there tend to be the more emotional kind of, I feel my way through singing, uh, the feelers. Um, it's very rare that, that people are really clear about their movements. And it's very rare that people are really clear about their sensations. They're either thinkers or feelers, generally, I would say. And the kind of uh, nerds would be kind of be toward the geeks would be toward the thinking side. And the more artists and like actors and like expressors would be more toward the feeling side which is great. There's nothing wrong with the thinking or the feeling. And let's let's make it even stronger by balancing that out with a clearer sense of movement and what you're actually doing in space and when, and a clearer sense of sensation and interoception so that you can really be with yourself in real time on a sensory level. And that's what really makes it somatic. Mm. Mm, it's really interesting. And we're so looking forward to your presentation in cool. June. Um, and I'd love to kind of delve into another direction of Feldenkrais, if if that's okay. And that's Please. this idea of clear intention. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that you actually posed in a recent episode of Thinking Voice with Stephen mm -hmm. King and Dr. Geneva Williams, which was the question of, and I'm just quoting from the episode here, what does it mean to have clear intention? And what does it mean to have a system that can actually follow that intention and then follow as that intention shifts and changes? And I remember intention being something that I was thinking about and, and kind of researching into in a brief way when I was studying for a vocology and practice uh, webinar that I did at the uh, conference last year. And it was the relationship between context and intention and how they play a role together. Um, and I've since found myself evaluating my intentions through certain things and, and how it might change your approaches. So can you tell us a little bit about that? It, firstly, what does intention mean and what does it mean to have a clear intention? Mm. Right. And this is the crux of it. And if there is a goal in this kind of learning, this is the goal. 
um, which of course isn't a, a thing. It's not an object. It's not something you could write down that's exactly the same for each person. It's more of a state and it's more of a, a process that becomes available. But in the Feldenkrais way of thinking, um, it would be more like I have I have a cup, right? I'm thirsty. I want to get the cup so that I can drink. So that's more of a need. And, an, and I have the intention to go get the cup so that I can drink. That's an intention. It's very simple, right? So how I do that is very different uh, depending on who I am and even the day or how, how tired I am or, or how somatically present I am. So the fact that I have the intention to get the cup, I, know where the, I have to know where the cup is. <laughs> I have to know that it's not to the left, that it's to the right of me. I have to know how far away or how close it is. I have to know where my hand is to actually hold the cup. Then I have to know where my mouth is to actually bring the cup to my mouth. And these are things we take completely for granted when it comes to actions like picking up a cup and bringing it to the mouth to drink. Mm -hmm. But they are fundamental. And these are things that we, we learn to do um, as, as young children. So how I do that then becomes the next question. So... I can do that a thousand plus different ways. I can I can bend in my spine to so that right currently the the cup is to my right on the floor. So I'm bending to bring my hand closer to the cup. And now I'm I'm going to unbend the spine <laughs> to bring the cup up. I barely used my arm at all. But if my image was well the only thing I can do to get my cup is to use my arm then I will keep my spine straight, reach my arm. So now I'm holding my breath. I'm using a lot of extra work in my torso that I don't necessarily, it's not bad, but I don't need it. I'm going to have to let it go. And then at some point I'm going to have to bend. And now if I do it like that, I'm already a little tight. So this is interesting. So there are lots of ways that I can do it. How can I do it in the most easy, most pleasant, most functional, most repeatable, um, sustainable way? So this is the idea of intention and action. So if I can't do a particular movement, I can have all the intentions in the world to reach that cup and I won't be able to. So hmm, something has to follow in order for me to actually carry out that intention. And that's where the learning occurs. It occurs in exploring all sorts of different movement patterns, inc in including different orientations, including different um, initiation points. And so a lot of times in the lessons, we will, we will look at, okay, what happens if I initiate from the shoulder? What happens if I initiate from the sternum? What happens if I initiate from the, from the pelvis? It can initiate from anywhere. And so the idea is we develop many, many options to meet that intention so that the action can be most efficient, most functional, most comfortable, and most sustainable over a lifetime. So this is the idea. And the way Feldenkrais talked about it was um, that, the, that the work is about clarifying the intention. So as I get clearer and clearer and clearer about what the intention is and how many ways I can meet it and what it means to meet something in an efficient way, then I will be, quote unquote, functional. And that is something that I can do in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to performance, this becomes an interesting question because it's not just picking up a cup so that you can drink. 
it becomes it becomes very subtle, especially when it's vocal. It's like we have a whole world in here, in the throat, in the mouth, um, in the pharynx, in the nose, in the torso. There's a whole world of, of movement possibilities here. So when I have a vocal intention, how do I meet that intention in the most functional way? Well, what's the intention? So all the different things that I had to go through with the cup, is it on the right side or the left side? Is it near? Is it far? Um, should I use my arm? Should I use my torso? Like all those little questions we're used to doing when it's an external thing. What happens when it's internal? And what do I need to know about myself, my parts and pieces, my connections with those parts and pieces, and all the different ways that they can move and work together so that they can meet an intention that is somewhat intangible right? It's not so obvious. And it's also, there are lots of variations. So it becomes an interesting question. Um, my intention is to sing that high note. Okay. How? What, what is a high note? Where is it? Um, what do I need to do? What parts need to work together? How can I do that in a non-technical way? And how can I explore things in such a way that my system is primed to do it? Whether I understand it or not and it's functional and um, artistically fulfilling and pleasing. These are the kinds of questions. Does that answer your question about mm. intention? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was also just leading on from that, going to ask your opinion on how this then relates to the coach and how they use their intention in the lesson, how they direct what they're mm. wanting to help <laughs> the student achieve. So on the flip side, being the coach now, how would this idea of intention help in a successful coaching session? Great question. And I love that question. Um, well, two, there are two levels. I like to say, and you know, I do a teacher training program and I have for the last probably five years and I'm on, a, I'm on another iteration now. And this is something that, that's also a kind of paradigm shift for teachers and coaches. The way I like to say it is, um, when someone sings something or does something, and I'm making an analysis as the outside person observing um, what's working and what's not working, where is it easy? Where could it be easier? Um, I often ask my question myself the question, um, what are they not aware of that they could be aware of? And if they were, would change how they are doing what they're doing? That's one question to ask. And then the other is, what's the one thing that I could tell them right now <laughs> that instead of telling them, let me create a learning experience in which they most likely could figure it out for themselves without me having to say it. And then in the end, they may or may not say it. That doesn't mean it's a failure. Uh, or they may say it in a different way than I said it. Or they may come up with another way of understanding it that still works, but I didn't say what it was. Um, often it is similar because if the intention is clear and the and the learning situation is set up in such a way that it's most likely to go in a certain direction based on on what we're paying attention to and how and the movements and the sounds then they they'll probably come to it themselves and it's a process of discovery on the part of the student it's a process of restraint and control on the pro on the side of the coach and it's a process of really using your smarts 
and your awareness and your know-how to not harass the student or be the smart person in the room that tells them what to do or be the person who knows all the time, but to actually think about, okay, this person clearly hasn't put certain things together. Um, maybe they, they're not aware of this option. Maybe they've never made this sound. How could, how could we devise an experience in which they could discover that sound for themselves, even though the lesson itself is pointing them in that direction? And I think that when you find that, that balance of, um, I call it being directly indirect. It's a very clear, I have a very clear intention about what it is that I, that I intend that they could discover, but I'm not telling them what it is and I'm not forcing it upon them. And so in the process of their going through this learning experience, it's like a child going through a developmental experience and they have the aha moment for themselves. And so when they have that aha moment for themselves, they own it, it's them, it's their experience. They'll never forget it. It's not like what often happens, which is, well, my teacher said I'm supposed to lift my palate. Am I lifting my palate? And they don't know. And so they have to wait for the teacher to say, yes, you are, no, you're not. Yes, you are, no, you're not. So if the teacher wants to say, you know, it's gonna be much easier if you just lift your palate on that note. Uh, <laughs> and they say, well, I'm not gonna say that. Then the question is, well, what could I create that could allow them to figure that out for themselves in their own way without me forcing it or, or directly saying this is what it should be. And mm. I think that's, that's the art of it. Mm. Are there any moments where you have found yourself having to be a little bit more direct with what you say? If, if the student is very lost, is it, is it actually then helpful for you to jump in and say, you know what? lift your palate and see what happens try this and see what happens <laughs> the answer to that is yes of course and uh, there's a lot of things to manage you're managing the students expectations you're managing their feelings you're managing their their bandwidth for confusion um so yes i don't want to have them feel utterly confused for 45 minutes um in a way that feels frustrating so i'll probably back off and be a little more direct and then maybe go back and forth between direct, indirect, direct, indirect. Um, some students love the confusion. They just they just let go into it. They're like, wow, it's so cool to just explore and feel supported while exploring. And they trust that they're going to find something interesting, but they don't have to know what it is. Now that takes a while to get there. You can often use that as a reference. So the direct thing could be lift your palate, see what happens. How successful do you feel? Are you doing it? And then do you know you're doing it? Are you aware? What are you aware of when you do it? And then they might say, well, I think I'm doing it. I'm not sure. Or um, where is my palate? I don't know what my palate is. And then that can become the doorway for exploration. So you use the direct command <laughs> as uh, an introduction to how well they're able to actually do it. And mm -hmm. then they're like, wow, I don't really know. So, okay, great. Now let's, let's go into another kind of process to see, well, what could, you, what could you find that will allow you to know? And then we'll come back to asking the same question. Mm -hmm. So it could be more like that. Mm -hmm. And would you say that 
it will depend on and i guess i've i've mentioned this word quite a lot recently since speaking to um steven and doing the vocal health education mm -hmm. stuff which is the biopsychosocial element going okay this person's coming into the room and they're agitated today how much direct indirect balance can i use are they are they going to need a little bit more of this today or that and and that's quite a lot of information to have to, to kind of translate in a very short amount of time, isn't it? That's right. And I think the the important part is that that you're in conversation around it, and that you are you're aware of them being aware, and they're aware of you being aware. And I I often start all of my lessons with a check in. That's mm -hmm. just how I've done it for years. How are you doing? What's happening? What's going on? Life stuff. So I don't I don't I'm not of the school that says you know. Real life stays outside the door. We only work on scales and notes and songs and music here. And um, no, the person's life is here. You, you can't deny it. If they're having a day where they're feeling sad, that's in their body, that's here, that's in their mind, that's in their voice. You can't ignore it. Mm. If they're feeling frustrated or agitated because they were on the, you know, a public transport coming to the lesson, everything was late and everything was was delayed, and they they come in sweating and running. <laughs> um, yeah, we're gonna take we're gonna have to take you know five or so minutes just to chill out and and let everything settle and then see where they are beyond the fact that there was traffic um now some people would say that that's a waste of time but if you just jump in and the person is frustrated or is sad what happens is because it's the whole being and the whole person the whole soma learning all the time if they learn something that's vocally useful in a state of being frustrated, they're learning it in the context of frustration. They'll mm -hmm. somehow they'll bring that frustration with them to how they learned it. So for me, it's sort of setting the scene and taking care of the context is acknowledging what's happening on a, on a biopsychosocial level, and um, and as much as possible, you know, it's it's an elusive impossibility finding. As, as neutral a way to to be with each other and whatever it is we're learning so that when it's learned there's as little um undesirable or as feldenkrais called it parasitic action learned into whatever it is that's found mm -hmm. it's that frustration pattern it's a it's a physical pattern it's an emotional pattern so you're going to learn in the context of that pattern which yeah, which is a risk, actually. Mm. Mm. Keeping on the intention theme, when it comes to us as coaches, how helpful or hindering could a pre-planned lesson be? So if we're, you know, I've got, you know, so many students today and I, I'm going to plan this. Last time I heard this, I'm going to do this exercise because it's something that I'm having I've had a bit of a love-hate relationship with. Um, and recently I found myself needing to change my intention because I found that the pre-planned plan was skewing my intention completely in the moment. And I never, I found myself actually never really looking at the plan. It was more there as like a, a crutch. Yes. So what would you say about that? I think um, my philosophy is the rule of no rules. And the idea is, and it was Feldenkrais's as well. Um, yeah, we set up all these rules in the ideal, right? But then in real life, we have to go with what's happening. We have to adapt. 
we have to respond. It is our job to respond. Mm -hmm. So if I am coming in so strong with a plan, and I'm sure it's beautiful, A, B, C, D, we're going to get to E, it's going to be great, they're going to learn this, and they're going to find that. Color coordinated as well, Robert. Color coordinated, yes. <laughs> I'm sure, and I do some, I do similar things. Um, I do that more with workshops. With private lessons, um, I just jump in. And I have, it's almost, it's interesting. I have, I would, again, I would call it an intention, but it's a light intention. It's like, ah, wouldn't it be interesting to work on this as we go along in these several lessons? So I kind of have that in the back of my mind. But if I am superimposing that on the person without actually adapting or responding to them moment by moment by moment by moment, that that is a kind of, uh, it's a kind of aggression is how I see it. It's, it's an aggressive act. Now it's a well-intentioned and, and um, you know, on the scale of aggressive acts, it's not, it's not uh, criminal, <laughs> but, but it's still an aggression, right? I'm imposing something on you. And I, there is a cost to that. The person will not feel that they own it as much. They will not feel as well-connected with. They will not feel as supported. By you. They'll feel more like they have to reach something, uh, get it right, or do something that they don't feel connected to. So for me, I think for my, for my analytical brain, my thinking brain, my sequential understanding of, of uh, development brain, sure, I can, I can come up with all sorts of plans and they're great in theory, they're great in the ideal, but then there's the person. So mm-hmm. If you can match your ability to work with the person, so if you're as good and strong at that as you are with creating these kind of um, learning sequences, then sure, you can you can play that game. There's another there's another option, which is just go go with the student and see where they take you. And the, I also like the hybrid. I like the in between. I have learned a lot in the in between. Um, back in my, I would call it my kind of heyday of, of when I, it really clicked for me and I was really creating really new and interesting lessons. Um, I was teaching sometimes 36 to 40 students a week. And I was like, really, really um, churning them out. And uh, some days um, I would, I would have a really good idea. And I think, you know, I'm going to explore this idea with everyone. And so what would happen was I would take the idea, the, the intention. I say a good lesson is one lesson is one idea, uh, many connections. One lesson, one idea, many connections. So um, what I would do is take that idea, um, take that one lesson and adapt it to each person. So if one person came in saying, you know, I'm just getting over a cold and my nose seems really stuffed and I can't seem to X, Y, and Z, we would do the same lesson. And the next person comes in, you know, my posture is not feeling really good and, and I'm uncomfortable here in my neck and my shoulders. We would do the same lesson. Someone else would come in, I really want to belt this high note and it's really difficult and I'm straining. We would do the same lesson. So then, okay, how am I going to adapt this one idea, one lesson, um, to this person and this question, and I would I would shift it and change it and mold it 
Now, were we basically doing the same thing? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a particular sequential idea, but I adapted it in such different ways with each student that each student had a totally different outcome with the same quote unquote lesson. Mm -hmm. I think that is a really good practice to do as, as one is developing their understanding of this kind of learning, because you start to see, you know, what's, what's the real magic sauce? Is it the adaptation or is it the thing you think is the sequential lesson? Mm -hmm. And I think in most cases, it's, it's the ability to have that clear functional intention and adapt beautifully to the person in the moment. This is where it gets to the biopsychosocial. Um, I didn't know anything about biopsychosocial theory uh, until I met Stephen. <laughs> and, and when I met him, he said, Robert, you're already doing it. And I was like, okay, well, what is it? <laughs> so then I read about it and I was like, oh, right, I, I just do that. And mm -hmm. I learned it from a totally different way. I learned it more from this, this model of, of learning um, and facilitation where I'm respecting the person. And it's always with respect to the whole person at all times. Mm -hmm. And so regardless of what the uh, functional intention might be, the real interesting thing is, is how we're relating, how we adapt, um, how, how we connect around these things. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't keep anything out, you know, mm -hmm. how, how you eat, how you feel, who you're dating, what your mother says, you know, how well you slept, what shoes you wear, mm -hmm. all these things. It's, it's all... It's all part of the story. Which is why you probably call yourself the connoisseur of connections. The connoisseur of connections. Yeah. And when you, when you start actually being intentional about, about bringing these things into the context of the lesson and noticing connections, you, you, start, to, you start to really see that, that, a, that it's, we are a, a system of connections. That mm. is what we are. And that that can also change and adapt and, and develop make new connections, add connections to connections, mm. connect connections. Mm. And that biopsychosocial model, it's that it's, it's similar in how you've described your sense and sensibility in terms of mm -hmm. balancing out those, those four pillars. And it's the same with the biopsychosocial. And I, I, was, I remember speaking to Stephen about him saying some people are heavily bio or, or, or one of the others, and it's about yeah. just retracking the others. So just bringing the focus on the focus on for a second, if that's okay, mm -hmm. just can you tell us a little bit more about what you'll be delving into on the 27th of June? Uh, your title again there is Sense and Sensibility, Developing Greater Interreception Through Uniting Our Thinking, Feeling and Sensing in Action. Yes, and that was a perfect segue, thank you. Because one of the things that becomes obvious when you start to think of these four aspects that create the self in awareness the one that is usually least available is sensing. And so being able to actually take the time and be guided in such a way to expand your ability to sense yourself more accurately, more openly, and also in novel ways, um, really shifts how you think, how you move, and how you feel. And that is a really beautiful uh, experience. And I say in the, in the um, blurb about the workshop, I, one of the things I find myself saying a lot is we must sense before making sense. Mm. So everyone wants to understand, well, what am I doing? What is that? Why? And I'm like, hey, let's take some time to actually sense what's happening. 
before jumping to some intellectual or external answer, which may or may not be true depending on what you actually find with yourself. So learning to actually go in and really um, almost luxuriate in your own sensory experience, one, it's one, it feels good. Two, it gives you the kind of information, experiential information, sensory information, self-connection information to be able to answer these questions on your own for yourself. And they may match up with some things that other smart people have come up with, and they may be different, and that's okay. So this idea of sensing before making sense. Now, I also find a lot of people are thinky, so they're making sense of things on a more intellectual basis, which tends to be a little disconnected. And so they aren't necessarily taking into account the part of the system that is the sensory aspect of the system. Mm -hmm. So it might make sense in kind of, um, let's say, mechanical, mechanical reality or um, even just parts and pieces reality, right? But we are not just parts and pieces. We are not a machine. I am not, I am not an object. So when I am a person singing, I am also my sensations. I am also my feelings. I am also my own thoughts, my own images, my own memories, my own past experiences, and, and the history of my own movement, which may be very different than the history of your movement. Mm -hmm. So yes, there might be a theoretical understanding of what should be or could be, but I am a person. I am a being. I, and that being at its core rests on sensations. That's the kind of almost like the, the building block. How do you know what your feelings are if you don't have sensations? Mm. How do you know you're moving if you don't have sensations or you're not in contact with your sensations? And the more in contact with your sensations are, the more accurate and clear and intentional you can be with your movements. And those can be vocal movements, those can be physical movements, those can be anything. Now, Feldenkrais basically also contended, and we've learned this also through other neuroscientists in the last 10, 15 years, that thinking is also heavily dependent on movement and sensation. How could we think without sensing? How could we think without moving? So starting to include all these other three in the whole really changes the aspect, changes the, the perspective and the, the context in which we process reality mm. fundamentally. Mm. So how are we going to explore that? Very simply, <laughs> through movement and sensing. And you see what happens. It's like an experiment. We don't always know. And what I love about group work is each person is so individual and each person is such their own little, um, um, you know, perceptual place in the world <laughs> that we can all quote unquote do the same lesson and have very, very different experiences. Mm. And we'll all learn something different, which is wonderful. That's, mm. that's not bad. That's great. Yeah. That means it's a good lesson. And we're so looking forward to it. We can't wait. Oh, and cool. 
Listeners, if you haven't got your ticket yet, why not? If you're listening to this before the 27th of June 2022, then head to basttraining.com forward slash event to book your place. So, Robert, what else have you got coming up? Anything interesting that we can kind of jump on the bandwagon with? Oh, sure. I actually have a uh, series next month that has a similar title, but very different um, next part, which is it's called Sense and Sensuality. Oh, and that one's about exploring the potent connections between singing and sex. Oh, amazing. Yes, I read your recent blog. Indeed. So I'm going to be exploring those connections, which are somewhat taboo. Um, but, you know, I'm old enough now that I don't really care. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I also find that, you know, if we're really in the biopsychosocial model, we can't pretend that that is not a part of what's going on here. So... Um, over the years, I've noticed many connections and worked very respectfully and very, you know, um, above board with these things. I'm very, very strong about boundaries and very clear intentions around, you know, not crossing certain boundaries. So, um, however, these are important aspects of, of a person's life. So I've been developing over the years and I was a little shy for a while. So this is kind of the first time I'm actually doing this publicly, um, yeah, how do we explore the interesting connections between the singing organization and the organization for for pleasing and um, satisfying sex mm. of any sort, no, no matter what your gender, no matter what your, your sexual orientation. And yeah, that's something interesting. So that'll be next month, four Wednesdays in June. Um, and then um, have some other things coming up uh, in the fall. And if you want to check it out, my, my website is thesingingself.com and there's an events page. Amazing. Oh, nice one. I've really enjoyed every minute of talking to you. Thank oh, you wonderful. so much. And I'm so looking forward to seeing you again on the 27th of June. Thank you so much, Alexa. Dear fellow Curious Voice Nerd, have you got your ticket to our next event yet? Well, head over to www.basstraining.com forward slash store and we'll save you a seat. That's www.bastraining.com forward slash store. Don't worry, you haven't totally missed out on our past events. A recording is waiting for you there too. You probably want to sign up to our mailing list though, just to make sure you never miss another cordial invitation. So follow the link in our podcast description to join. See you at the next one.